This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with another episode of Ranching Reboot. Today's guest, this really ties up a lot of the concepts we discussed in previous episodes with Mike Calicrate and Temple Grandin about supply chains and about food hubs. You know, I've understood that a lot of you haven't listened to everything, that there was an episode zero. So I'd encourage you after you listen to this one, go back and check out episode zero. It does explain a little bit about who we are and what we're doing here. And coming up, I've got a special treat. I don't know if we're going to be able to get it out this week or it'll be next week. But we got a special treat coming up. A lot of you have been having questions about, who is this CK person anyway? We're going to answer those questions in an hour and a half special coming up. Coming up. So stay tuned for that. Anyway, today's guest, we talk about what holistic management is and why the science community is slow to come around, what it means to be a second-generation holistic rancher, and about novel marketing channels and public food spaces. We talk about solving distribution issues, separating producers from consumers. So, as always, here's my co-pilot and my best buddy, CK, to introduce today's guest. All right. Hi, everyone. This is Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and CK. Today we have Beth Robinette at Lazy R Ranch. Beth, how are you doing? I'm great. Happy to be here. Thank you. So Beth, welcome. It's great to have you here. It's uh, it's been quite a while since we've seen each other. Um, I know I follow, I've been following you on Instagram for a while, and I'm definitely a fan. There's a lot we want to talk about. So, well, first, for those that aren't familiar with you, why don't you go ahead and give us a rundown of where you're at and uh, where you're at, where you've been, and how you got where you are, and uh, what your operations like. Sure. Yeah. So I'm. I'm based in Spokane, Washington, just west of Spokane, which is part of the historic tribal homeland of the Spokane people. Um, but, you know, Spokane is kind of an interesting, I don't know how much history you want me to go into, but I'm just going to go way back. Uh, Spokane is really kind of an interesting place because the Spokane Falls, which is really like what the city of Spokane is built around, is an ancient gathering place for the Spokane people for um, salmon fishing. And just kind of so like awesome. an important cultural hub and gathering place. And that's really what the city of Spokane is built around. Um, and so that also means that this area was, uh, was a trade route where people moved, uh, you know, people from lots of different tribes were interacting and coming together. Uh, and we also, you know, fast forward through a few hundred years of history. Um, kind of because we're in the in the Pacific Northwest at the very end of uh, westward expansion for the United States, at which point the United States military was kind of in an effort mood and was just like, yep, let's just get rid of all of these Indians and um, really not a lot of like negotiation uh, happening around that. And so 
in in the series of just like a, a few years, really, the um, Spokane people were were really restricted um, in terms of their their access to their traditional land base. Um, and then fast forward through history a bit more to my family arriving on the scene. Uh, my great grandparents came to the Lazy R Ranch in 1937. So prior to that, they were kind of doing uh, dirt farming, tenant farming around the Palouse, which is kind of the, the wheat growing region just to the south of us. And uh, they knew that they wanted to establish close to Spokane during the Great Depression. They had, uh, they had a few milk cows. I think they had 20 cows or something. And they knew if they could find some farmland close to an urban center that they would have enough of a market to be able to kind of weather the depression. Um, so this is probably a way longer answer than you anticipated. But you asked me how I got here. So <laughs> here we are. Um, so, uh, so my my great grandpa and my grandpa and my great uncle kind of ran the dairy together. Um, my grandma, we've always had a, an off off farm, off ranch income as part of our our family. My great grandma was actually a professional chef, uh, so oh, she she worked nice. at Lakeland Village, which is this nearby institution for developmentally disabled people. Um, and she ran the, the kitchen there and ser was serving like many hundreds of meals of scratch cooking. They also had a farm uh, there that, that kind of the, the clients that lived there uh, or the people who are institutionalized there ran the farm as well. So anyway, I, it, now that I'm engaged in a lot of farm to table work, I just find these like patterns through history really, really fascinating. Like what I'm trying to get institutions to do or what I've spent a lot of my time trying to get institutions to do now is really the same stuff that my great grandma was doing, um, you know, 80, 75 years ago. All right. So fast what, forward through time. We got to oh, go sure yeah. circle back to that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's definitely uh, part of my I mean, it's still related to ranching, but it's a little different part of my life too, um, doing broader food systems work. Um, so we ran the ranch as a dairy up until the 60s and um, kind of that time, well, really around 1950, my grandpa made the transition to beef cattle. Um, my, I had, my great uncle kept milking cows for a little while after that, but you know, obviously a lot, there's been so much consolidation in the dairy industry, which I hope you do a whole right. podcast about at some point. Um, we'll have to but, find somebody, somebody in the dairy industry that's yeah. good to talk to. So. I mean, you just, I just think about like the fact that my family was making a living on a 40 cow dairy and how completely like you ha can't, you have to have a 4,000 cow dairy to like. There, it's a mega cow. dairy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, well, you know, the late fifties, early sixties, you know, that was the transition point when transportation and grain both became cheap enough to be able to, right. you know, to be able to justify, you know, confining animals and then feeding and hauling and feeding them a bunch of grain. And that's when the whole, I mean, that's when the whole model started to change just back there in the late fifties, early sixties, you know, right. yeah. you had, you know, when your family was getting out of the dairy and then, and towards the beef, I'm sure that, you know, maybe, maybe your family saw that coming. Maybe they did just lucky um but you know that like i, said, I do that was think also part of it was also that built. that my grandpa grew up milking 40 cows by hand and he was just done to 
crazy. That's wild. <laughs> he was like, let's just get like beef is a way easier way to make a buck. <laughs> right, right. Oh my gosh. So I, there might have been a bit of that, you know. Um, I can understand that. Dairymen <laughs> sure, are like, wow. I have I have so much respect for the dairymen because they are yeah. the hardest working guys in ag. For sure, for sure. I am I'm definitely very lazy uh, on the continuum of that <laughs> of cowmen. Um, so then the the ranch was kind of run as a very conventional cow calf operation. Uh, my dad kind of joined on the management in the early '80s. Um, when he and my mom moved back to the ranch and my dad and grandpa ran it together. Yeah, just pretty much doing a cow-calf operation as conventional as conventional can be. Um, and then in the mid nineties, uh, my, uh, my dad got accepted into this program through Washington State University that was funded by the Kellogg Foundation, which was to train um, I don't remember, I think it was like a couple hundred people in Washington state in holistic management. And uh, kind of by a fluke, my dad ended up in this program. He actually wasn't slated to go. Our neighbor was gonna go to it. And at the last minute, like he had a schedule conflict and couldn't make it and was like, hey, you should sign up for this program, take my spot. Yeah, I think you'll be interested in it. And it was really um, pretty life-changing for my dad. And he became, uh, you know, it was also a time that he was thinking about kind of getting out of the cattle business himself. Um, mid nineties was not a, not a great time <laughs> to be selling beef on the commodity market. And I, I think it was just, my dad has a degree in sociology. He could go do something else besides chase cows around. Everyone in my family is highly right. overeducated. Um, <laughs> we're all just kind of obsessed with going to school forever, I guess. Um, so uh, anyway, he, he was kind of ready to get out and then had this experience where he just got completely reinvigorated about managing cows and what the possibilities of um, changing the way that we were managing our livestock could, could really have an impact on, on the ground. And so he went down that rabbit hole. So I, I, at that time was like nine or 10, 11 years old as my dad was kind of going through this transition. So um, you didn't have a choice. He hook you with him down yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was not, it, it's been really interesting for me because I'm kind of like a second generation holistic management practitioner in that like I didn't have some life-changing event that like made right. me look at this other way of approaching land management. It was like, oh, this is just kind of the way that we do things. And like, you think about things in a holistic way and you you think about uh, quality of life and future resource base and how to make sure all of your management decisions kind of have this triple bottom line like how do we make sure everything we're doing takes into account e ecological uh, social and financial factors like that was very much part of my uh, mindset that said I was not interested in ranching at all um, throughout my childhood like i was fairly oblivious of the whole thing other than knowing that I had a really cool place in the woods to go run around. So I had kind of like a nice quasi feral childhood, but um, not feral, like, I love it. <laughs> I, I did not, I was not hanging out with like the FFA kids at my high school. I did not see myself doing that. I was in the drama club, uh, you know, being angsty and writing slam poetry. Uh, 
but when I moved away to college, I took this class. I went to I went to Fairhaven College at Western Washington University, which is a, a kind of a hippy dippy design your own degree uh, program. And the first class that I took there was a 15 credit class on food, and it was taught by three professors. Um, and it was sort of like looking at food through an ecological lens, uh, a social lens, and then the third class was called critical and reflective inquiry. So it was just kind of through a broader critical thinking uh, lens. And just like that immersive class combined with living off the ranch in an urban environment for the first time in my life and eating in a cafeteria, which was very different from the kind of food that I uh, was right. raised eating eye-opening um, right yeah I was just like oh dang it's actually really awesome back at home and I actually have had this incredibly privileged life where I've had like access to all of this awesome stuff and like I should really do something good with that and that was the pivot point where I started thinking about coming home and running the ranch and uh, so I moved home in 2010 right after I finished up school um, you know, I think there's take, a lot of people of right now through COVID that that are yeah. where you were when you started college and you, and you took that uh, that food course, but without the background in holistic management or you know the background huh, of, of thinking and systems. I think a lot of people are there, and you know they're looking into their food systems and thinking about you know the environmental and the social impact of their food systems and they're really starting to question it and they're, and they're looking at it and they don't, they don't know always how to ask the right questions or where to go to find the right answers. Does that make any yeah. sense or? Uh... Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's just, that's really kind of making me think. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do feel like that, that like holistic thinking approach, even though it was very, Un, kind of under the surface in a lot of ways. I do feel like that's been so foundational to like my my worldview. Um, so we haven't really talked much about holistic management yet on the podcast. We've touched on it a few times. Can you maybe like encapsulate holistic management in just a few in just a few minutes? Like, what is holistic? Yeah, yeah. So so holistic management is this kind of body of work that's attributed to Alan Savory, um, who I think is a, a complicated person um, who has like some con controversial reputation, I guess. Um, and some of that's definitely deserved. So uh, he's an interesting figure and like I'm, uh, but that said, like for like all human beings are flawed. Definitely he is a very brilliant person and uh, a lot of his work has been super influential on my life. So the core of holistic management is really that it, it is a values-based, mission-based approach to decision-making. That, that's how I would really describe it. I think what gets a lot of attention is the grazing planning technique and strategy which is definitely a big part of it if you're using holistic management as a framework to manage land and, and livestock. Um, but what I would say is like the, the like secret sauce that 
really often gets left out of the discussion is that you as a manager think about what hole you're managing, like recognizing that that hole is endlessly interconnected with all things in a closed system. The hole We're, under management. The yeah, the hole under management. Exactly. Um, and you think about where you want to move that hole in the future, what you're managing towards. And you have like a clear, like as a group of decision makers, you have a clear um, shared vision of what that is. This is, okay, I'm gonna take a little aside here. Part of the interesting thing about my dad's training in holistic management is that it wasn't just training in holistic management. It was this program designed by Don Nelson who worked at Washington State University Extension. He passed away a couple years ago, really, really tremendous man. So he wanted to take producers and teach them holistic management, but also teach them consensus building skills and um, and kind of how to do stakeholder engagement. And that project also included um, members of the Confederated Colville tribes and was just this really kind of diverse cross uh, cross disciplinary training that was like, how do we help managers break out of, I mean, it's really the kind of the same stuff that your podcast is trying to address, I think. It's like, how do we help people break out of this current like state of, of where we are, which I think we can all recognize is not working super great. Right. How do we give them right. the tools to like move to the next stage of development and what our like what our land management looks like? Um, anyway, so I so like I think also a lot of my understanding of holistic management is um, influenced by the kind of that consensus building and um, some of the other stuff that isn't directly part of or maybe isn't explicitly part of Alan's work. Um, okay, but back to holistic management, sorry. We only have 90 minutes to get through all of this. I better, uh, <laughs> I've got to- We will, get we, if, if we run out of time, we'll just have you back on, Beth. Like, yeah, we can always okay, have okay. you back for part two if we can, if we sorry, can manage to I'm, get it scheduled. Yeah. I'm just finishing no my pot of coffee. I'm, I'm ready to go. Uh, yeah. All right, so, so you create this whole, you, you define this whole under management. You think about where you want to move it in the future. What do we want our landscape to look like in the future? What do we want our community to look like in the future? Like what, what are we actually building towards? And, and also we define what kind of quality of life do we want for ourselves? And I think that's something in agriculture people often have a hard time with. Yes. Um, because there's a whole cultural thing about just working very, very, very hard, which is not necessarily bad, um, but uh, really thinking about like, how do we want our quality of life to be, like what's the way we wanna show up to do this work is how I would think about it. And, and you have, once you have clarity around that, there's a decision-making process that can help you ensure that every management decision you make is working towards achieving that future resource base and that that quality of life and that's really like what the holistic what holistic management is um and that often gets like used interchangeably with any variety of right. systems um but yeah, it's kind of a over abused term by people that don't fully understand it i think yeah for, like on lots and lots of sides like i think there's lots of people that 
uh, just want to turn their cows out on forest allotments and they're like the land needs cattle Alan Savory said so and we don't have to do any management of that and then there's also people that are like all beef is evil holistic management something something I mean there's just like many many perspectives that, that are holistic very management is voodoo it can't be proved to work by science right. we can't yeah. replicate it in the lab yeah. Hippie man. Kind of the point. I mean, you you can't like the, the difference is, I mean, the scientific method is reductionist at heart. You have to control all the variables because you're trying to look for a specific outcome. And the difference with holistic management is you're not trying to control the variables. You're just trying to monitor the variables and look for signs of failure in your system and then tweak the biological inputs to resist the failures. Right. And I think the other key part is to not be, uh, to not have too much attachment to the how right. of, of how that's achieved. And I think, I mean, that's something that I certainly fall victim to. Like, I love my cows and I just want to do everything with cows. And that certainly blinds me sometimes to like, you know, if you have, if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if the only tool you have is a cow, everything looks like something that should be grazed. And I'm trying to like always challenge myself around um, my my own clouded judgment <laughs> of that situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like truly holistic management, you don't have any particular technique or practice that um, you're committed to in terms of like grazing density or like any rule of thumb. It's about just constantly adapting in response to the your observation of conditions on the ground and really like creating a feedback loop, which is a very scientific approach um, to land management, but it's also, like you said, really hard to um, prove in these sort of like linear reductionist things that are how a lot of um, right. things happen. How, how research has to be done because they have to be able to prove an outcome or show an outcome and that's you know it's just that's that's completely against holistic management and those of us that do it and live it and know it you know kind of we we kind of intuitively understand that that you just have to go do it and watch and keep replanning and observing and making observations and yeah so uh Wow, we did get down a we did go down quite a rabbit trail about holistic management. Um, I think I made it to the year nineteen ninety six. Yeah, yeah, I think I think we were about in the late nineties. Uh, uh, your dad went to holistic you training. Finished school, yeah, you finished school. Oh, yeah, you finished school. Oh yeah, you've been I to college. Home. You were already yeah, yeah. in college. That's right. Okay, so we're not a little more hopes than that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, we made it to college. <laughs> yeah, so I came, I came home in two thousand ten. Uh, I took care of my grandma for the last three years of her life, so that was kind of like the the thing that drew me back. But um, you know, also I. I think the interesting thing about that is like, I did have my own kind of personal transition moment in that time after I said that I didn't have to have that because my dad just brainwashed me. Um, but that experience of taking care of my grandma was like so mentally and emotionally challenging for me. And I, I really like struggled with depression and anxiety a lot during that time. And, um, and my life was like saved by being outside and like, being immersed in nature in the natural world 
and uh and like just made me fall in love with with like everything about land management like in a way that I had never really experienced before and that's like when I was really a goner for doing the whole ranching thing um just like oh my god it is so cool to see all of this living stuff and the relationships between it and um yeah like it's just endlessly exciting and thrilling to me so um so that's been kind of my own like personal deep dive into into why I do what I do um but the uh gosh I had another point I really wanted to make about that Oh, the other thing that I kind of brought when I moved back to the ranch is in school, I had become really interested in business and marketing and, um, you know, ha had watched my dad implement all these great grazing practices and um, still like kind of struggle financially because we were so at the mercy of the commodity market and like yeah. the volatility of that. And we don't have like a huge spread the I guess I didn't really talk about what the actual ranch is like but it's a it's a little over 800 acres it's on five non-contiguous pieces of property we're split down the middle by I-90 which is an interesting little management quirk of our place uh, most people don't have an interstate running through the middle of their ranch um, so you know it's like it's a decent sized place but it's not like I'm not going to reach an economy of scale there where um like I'm really gonna make money on the commodity market and like sustain my life uh, on the place. So I uh, became really interested in direct marketing and we had this great story to tell and I knew that people were interested in buying our product, but like we net, like my dad was definitely not interested in cultivating that. So that's kind of like the, the direct marketing program has been a big part of my focus when I, since I've moved back and uh, we have grown that in kind of an interesting way. We do like 90, 90 to 95% custom beef. So like I still have some quarters. I don't do farmer's markets. I don't do, you can't buy a steak from me. Um, I won't mail it to you, <laughs> but I mean, maybe that'll change in the future. But right, right now that's um, like, we're set up to sell just like direct to people in our community and uh, so you know, your because, customers are are just community members with deep freezers that that can yep, stash that yeah, much meat at just a time. Yeah, yeah, it's just families. Um, that's been kind of our focus, and like I think Spokane is um, a rustic enough place that people a lot of people are not super removed from a time when that was a normal way to eat food. Um, right. So. Yeah, I don't think it's as far outside of like in a more urban place where people are, you know, don't have a deep freezer or whatever, or think to have a deep freezer even. Um, so, you know, the Northwest isn't an area I've really been too much. I'm not really familiar with it. How far do you have to drive to get your animals slaughtered? So the bit, that's actually a big part of the reason why I focused on the custom meat is because I have a, a butcher that we have a very long-standing relationship. It's all, it's a, I'm fourth generation of my family. He's third generation of his family, but like going back to the beginning of like both our businesses, our families have worked together. Um, and, and so I just like, I love Jeff. He's the best butcher on earth. 
Um, he like I I trust him so much with my animals and my product, and so like I really was not interested in trying to create other. I really wanted to grow that relationship as much as possible and not be trying to figure out other processing venues, but because he's right. only custom, uh, uh, custom licensed, then that kind of limited the way I could sell my product. And thankfully there's enough of a customer base, um, here to support that. So, um, if I, so I do do a little bit of USDA inspected slaughter and I, uh, there's two plants. They're both about two hour drive away. I usually use the one in Sandpoint um, just because I like their meat cutters better. Uh, so that's about a two hour haul for me. And then a two hour haul to go pick my animals up again when they're done. But I, I try to do that just a couple of times a year. So what about the rest of them? The rest of my critters? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's all getting processed on farm with my custom guy. Um, so the way that I kind of the way that my sales channel works is uh, we have a mailing list. Uh, there's deposits that open once a year on February 1st. I send an oh, email nice. out on February 1st that says it's time to put your deposit in. This year on February 4th, I sold my last beef and then deposits closed for the year and then I don't do it marketing activities beyond that <laughs> um this year was That's really nice. great i've never i've never yeah. had it happen usually it takes a couple weeks this was just like covid times are are so crazy absolutely change yeah yeah um yeah and like a, a little uh there's a little bit of an end time vibe i think i had like multiple people buy two beef what what are you doing with two beef in a year i like I eat a lot of meat, but that's dang. That is a lot of cow. <laughs> a lot to put in the of freezer. a lot of beef. <laughs> uh, How big is it? Was this big family? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they have like fifteen kids. Um, yeah. Fifteen kids, yeah. and they all play football or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so then I just uh, have Jeff come out to the farm. Our harvest schedule is kind of July through August um, and he comes out every week or every two weeks and then we kill like five to eight beef at a time um, and he just kills them on farm and breaks them down into quarters and then he takes it back to his shop and does uh, does all the aging and, and cutting there and then uh, he emails me the hanging weights I invoice my customers and they pick it up from him so I don't ever do anything I, I'm just basically trying to live my life so I never have to leave the ranch. That's <laughs> that's the goal. I get it. I get it. I get it. And, you know, the more we talk today, the more I'm really, really appreciating the name of your operation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We try to put the lazy in lazy R, for sure. <laughs> I, I've, I've definitely gained a new appreciation for your name. That's, uh, that's great, Beth. So, you know, on farm harvest, I just, I love that model and I, I, I love what you're doing there. So tell me a little bit about Link Foods. Let's shift gears. Yeah. So um, Link Foods is, has been the other uh, passion of my life the last decade or better part of a decade. 
Uh, it's a company I helped start in 2014 and it's a worker and farmer owned cooperative food hub. So it's a, it's a distribution company for local farms. Um, I mentioned I got really interested in business and marketing. So after I moved home, then I decided to go back to school and go to business school. Um, so I did my MBA at this school called Bainbridge Graduate Institute, which actually doesn't exist anymore. Although I don't think that, yes, my business school went out of business. No, I don't think that reflects on the quality of my education. <laughs> uh, I did learn a lot of stuff there, but it, it was this small independent business school that was really focused on using the tools of business to create social good. Um, and through that, I met my business partner, Joel, uh, Joel Williamson, and he also had a multi, uh, multi-generation farming operation in his family. Um, he grew up growing roses under, in a greenhouse for cut flowers. So he like grew up walking around on stilts under two acres of glass, which just sounds very magical. Um, and his family business had actually been kind of swallowed up by globalization in the mid nineties and the cut flower business with like NAFTA and everything was just our domestic cut flower business was pretty much destroyed at that time. Plus the con consolidation of grocery stores, which was a big market for them. Um, Anyway, so we were both like really, really interested in food and agriculture and have long, uh, long time family ties to Spokane. And we're like, great, we have these fancy new business degrees. Let's start a business together. And we really tried to look at like the foods, the larger food system of Spokane and figure out like, okay, what are the things that we need to have like a resilient kind of self-sustaining food system in our region? And, um, one of the big opportunities that we identified was basically finding channels to move uh, to move local food to to beyond the farmers market. So we had like a small a small farm scene and a and a, like a decent farmers market scene in Spokane, but um, just not a, like unless you were a very specific type of person who was looking for that type of experience, uh, you were probably not accessing local food. Uh, if you lived in Spokane. And the, when we started the company and our focus until very recently has been opening up wholesale channels. So we worked with um, university dining services, Gonzaga, uh, Gonzaga University, Washington State University, which is about an hour and a half to the south of us. Um, yeah, kind of like figuring out how do we help these big institutions and also restaurants um, access local food because they want to buy it and we know that our farmers want to grow more and the the hang-ups are just kind of in this distribution network so um, so we started the company to really solve those problems uh, also there's lots of financial challenges to the problem we chose to solve um, and so we were looking we were looking for like a second line of business that had a higher profit margin to kind of prop the, the distribution business up until we grew it to a scale where it would be self-sustaining. And that's how I've gotten into the craft malting world. Um, so we also have, uh, uh, we have a facility that makes, we can make nine tons of craft malt a week and that's all locally grown and then sold to brewers and distillers um, mostly in the Pacific Northwest, where we have a pretty happening brewing and distilling scene. Um, and 
COVID has been a really interesting year for the business because uh, we've made a lot of pivots. Um, I'm so tired of saying the word pivot. Like, is it just because of demand though? Is that why? Uh, well, because, okay, so go back to March of last year um, when the shutdown started happening uh, mm -hmm. because our business was so focused on institutions, schools, and restaurants, we lost 80% okay. uh, of our customers basically overnight when the shutdown started. So we really had, I mean, we, we knew it was coming like with a couple weeks notice, but it was a, it was a pretty serious, oh shit moment. Like what we have been doing is not what we're doing now. Um, and at the same time, people, like you were saying, are just having this renewed interest in local food and also experiencing going to the grocery store and not being able to buy exactly what you want when you want it, which I think was very sobering for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, like, oh man, if we only rely on these really long, uh, like value chains to get our really product. Really long, overly complex, centralized, subsidized supply chains. Right. So there were things like meat, meat and flour that we had freezers of because they were lined up to go to institutions and people couldn't find that in the grocery store. So there, so there was like, and we always had done a little bit of a direct to consumer multi-farm CSA, but that just really blew up and we launched an a la carte marketplace as well um and that also helped us realize like how foolish it was that we had been trying to make this wholesale business work and we had never made money doing it um but we just like kept hoping i don't know i still have complicated feelings about it because on the one hand i think we um we were doing something really important it just didn't make money <laughs> and that doesn't mean that it wasn't a thing worth doing um and we had like tons of successes through that that i'm really proud of but also it was like okay we have to focus our time and energy on lines of business that are actually self-sustaining and revenue positive and and like we can't just keep hoping and wishing that something that's not going to work is going to work someday so um we've made some pretty big shifts in our business so going forward at least for the time being maybe wholesale is going to come back in some other form in the future but uh really focused on this direct-to-consumer thing growing that program uh and the other really interesting thing that we were able to do this last year is um we took advantage of a couple different funding programs to do more boxes for food insecure people. So we're doing the same kind of multi-farm CSA offering, but we were able to get contracts to give those to food banks and other nonprofit partners. Because um, obviously food banks have been really kind of crushed this year. A lot of their labor is volunteer, older folks that are now staying home. Um, because of COVID and also there's kind of an all-time high demand on food banks as there are just more people experiencing food insecurity. So it was a really cool opportunity for our company to um, to like do this thing that we already had created great proficiency around how to do and get super just super nutritious high quality awesome produce to people uh, that needed it and also make sure that all of counted on uh, moving product through the co-op this year, we're actually able to, mm -hmm. to sell their stuff. So 
yeah, all in all, big win for the Link Foods team this year, but it was uh, not the funnest year of my life. I, I think we can all agree that uh, we'd rather forget most of 2020 or pretend it didn't happen or, you know, go back and redo <laughs> it. You know, maybe we'll all wake up and it was just a massive, horrible, <laughs> shared nightmarish hallucination, but I don't think that's going to happen. You, you hit on a concept that's... Um, that I've been chewing on for a few minutes that, you know, the hangups really are in the distribution system. And, and that's always been the problem. I think that's almost always been the problem in agriculture is the people that are way out, you know, in the rural areas with a deep connection to the land. Um, you know, it, it's so far away from the urban centers and getting, you know, getting that not only transportation connection, but getting that, you know, cultural connection through the food back to the land, you know, we've, we've totally lost that in the distribution system too. Well, yeah. And I, I think that cuts both ways. I think there's all, there's like a real disconnect between uh, what, like what, what farmers do. I mean, it's the same, the same thing that you just said, like what farmers do and their end consumer, like understanding the cares and the concerns of like the people that actually eat the food that we make um, because it, it touches like so many hands before it ever like, you know, it gets turned into whiz bang, whatever um, fancy product you pop in the microwave. So it goes, you know, probably around the world and back before it touches the end consumer. Yeah. You know, I saw, I saw an infographic the other day, um, you know, we're recording this at the beginning of February in the middle of the polar vortex and it won't be released for quite a while, but, uh, the other day was just national pizza day. Okay. Not, not necessarily a big deal. And I'm sure most people probably don't know about it, but my father-in-law owns a pizza, pizza restaurant. So I'm aware. And the infographic I saw, you know, kind of broke down a lot of the common ingredients, you know, in pizza, you know, what goes in the dough, the tomato sauce and that, you know, yeah, a lot of these things that, you know, we can't grow in Kansas or, you know, we get from here, 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 here. And I think that infographics like that are a little bit misleading because yes, we grow a lot of flour here. Yes, there are places that mill flour here, but does that mean that a pizza hut sources any flour that it uses in Kansas from Kansas? Probably not. Maybe the local, I, you know, I, I know Dave, he does sources. He does get his flour from a Kansas miller. That's cool. But, you know, we, we've had some conversations with him about what it would take to maybe have a, a more local offering on his menu and just how to get, you know, that supply chain going. And as a restauranter owner, he doesn't have time, you know, to go out and find all those things. And, you know, if people local would grow the stuff at a fair price and offer it to them, and there was some kind of a distribution network or, uh, you know, something like a food hub, then right, it yeah, would I enable mean, that. That's commerce. like exactly the kind of barriers that we were setting out to to solve. Um, top, time, complexity, quantity, and insurance. Those are like the the main barriers. Uh, and the insurance thing is really when you get to talk, talking to institutional buyers that contract their uh, food service out to 
a company like Sodexo or Airmark or Bon Appetit or whatever, um, a lot of those larger companies are like multi-billion, multinational corporations right. that like don't just let Farmer Joe Blow become a vendor um, so that like the local small college can buy tomatoes from him. Um, you know, you have to hold a million, you know, $5 million liability insurance policy and uh, to apply to become a vendor with Sodexo. And that's just not like a cost that it makes sense for a small farmer to bear because it's not made for them. So that, you know, that was kind of, uh, kind of part of why, why we really wanted to start Link is like, how could we get a bunch of farmers together to share those costs so that we could actually access those channels? Um, it's just like the unfortunate fact that even though there were a lot of restaurants and the wholesale buyers that wanted to work with us, it just wasn't enough. We needed to have like 14 more customers like, uh, like Washington State University or, um, or Gonzaga in order to do the business in a way that was actually gonna be profitable and that just didn't exist in Spokane. So um, yeah, I mean, it's the other interesting thing about food hubs is that they're so community and context driven. Um, right. Every community's food hub, like the places where they exist are, are so different based on kind of the local conditions and what the, what the customer base is like. What are some commonalities you've seen between food hubs or between successful food hubs? Uh, that's a great question. I think, I really think community partnerships are, um, are probably the, the most important thing um, because like everything is so contextual. Uh, the food hubs that are really successful are ones that understand how to engage with like a broad um, like intersectional segment of the communities that they're existing in. Um, I think there's been a lot of really awesome cooperation between food hubs as well. Like there's a, there's a really robust community of practice. Um, like there's an email listserv. People are always talking about like, what software are you guys using? How are you solving this new proposed FISMA traceability rule? Um, there, there's just a lot of like exchange of information. And it's um, also because like it's, pretty locally focused there's not really a feeling of like competitiveness like if a co-op or you know if a food hub from Minneapolis calls me and has a question I'm like there's no incentive for me to not tell them the answer because I'm not like protecting some trade secret they're gonna like blow up and come take over my market share or something um that like there are communities that have multiple food hubs like seattle is a big city there's like multiple food hub type operations happening there um but it seems like for the most part people just have a very cooperative vibe and that's really pleasant to be around because it's like we're all just in this to try and figure out how to have like a nicer planet to live on um there's no need to be like not working together to that end. That's my kumbaya moment of the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> be collaborative. <laughs> There's a, yeah, I like that. I like to say that, you know, we should all identify as human beings, stewards of spaceship earth. 
Oh, and, that's sweet. And and think and think that way. So I want to I want to keep talking about food hubs and what what are some what's some good advice you might have to people that are thinking that it might be a good idea for them to start a food hub or oh start organizing God. one in their community. <laughs> no, don't ask. I that haven't even got right to page. Is that I haven't another even got hour? Halfway down my page <laughs> questions yet, Beth. We're gonna have to have her back on. Yeah, yeah we're, I, we're definitely gonna have to have you back, Beth. A two-parter. All right. Uh, <laughs> so the. Oh man, I've been thinking like, I've been thinking a lot about this, like, would I do this again? Or how would I do this again if I was going to start over? Um, well, first of all, I, I would say there, there are a lot of resources out there already. Uh, the Food Hub movement is really growing. So I would say check out the Wallace Center. Um, that's kind of like the nonprofit that does a lot of food hub work. They do benchmarking studies. So they'll send surveys out to like a bunch of different food hubs in the country and collect metrics and like, what's the average revenue and, and profit margin and uh, kind of like, what's the sales per FTE, all, all kinds of handy metrics to look at like what models of food hubs are, are financially successful. Um, so I would say definitely take advantage of any resources like that. Um, the other thing that I think was really important and I wish we had done even more of, although I don't know, I guess you always wish you had done more, um, is like really, really understanding the needs of the, the farmers and the customers that you're trying to serve before ever doing anything. So yeah. Uh, Joel's background is in community organizing, so we already had kind of a natural approach to that, um, and that like we just took a community organizing framework to engaging with farmers. So we had tons and tons of meetings um, where actually this was this this was really great. Um, we had this partnership with Gonzaga because they really really wanted to figure out how to buy local for their dining hall and they would do and we and the guys that rent I they're both retired so I don't think I'm going to get anyone in trouble but the guys that were running dining just like did so much to try and help us get things off the ground so they would like they would pay for catering for us to have meetings where we could serve everybody like a nice big like supper and that's a great way to get people to show up to shit uh, I was like, well, you're going to get like a, a three course meal. Food. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And it wasn't like pizza, hot dogs. Like they really would go all good out food, and make, like, right? really yeah. nice, really nice catered dinners for these things. Um, which, yeah, I have no idea if they had authorization to do that, but they, they really helped us uh, just get people to turn up and, and talk to us. We also had a great relationship through Washington State University Extension Office in Spokane. Um, so their small farms team was super supportive of us just like helping get farmers together and talk to folks. Um, and the other thing that's kind of, I think, special and also something I would do totally different <laughs> uh, is that Link is also a, a worker. So we're a farmer and worker owned cooperative, which means that all the employees are also owners of the business, um, which I think is the is awesome and like probably the coolest thing about Link. 
However, I knew nothing about how to start a company when I started Link because I'd never started a company before. And um, I think like understanding how to get a team of human beings to work together really effectively, especially when you're trying to do everything in like a very non-hierarchical, non-traditional yeah. creative way is, is super hard. And I definitely think that like we made plenty of missteps along the way um but like I don't know I don't know how I could have learned that any of that stuff without the the like just doing it or trying to start yeah. a company right because I was like 25 when I started link or 26 so not yeah I'd never like really had a real like job even before <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but but like I think that it's it's really really cool to go from where we were as like a, a startup team of two or three people to now having eleven employees and feeling like we actually do have, uh, like a structure where people have tons of autonomy and we also do a pretty good job of making collective decisions and um, and doing that in a way that's efficient and effective. I think that's been really really fun to watch unfold and. Uh, and I think that our team is making better decisions because of it. I hope we are. Right. So uh, a couple episodes ago, we had Mike Calicrate on. And I don't know, Beth, I don't know if you know Mike. CK, she's over there smiling because she remembers the conversation. I mean, it was, that guy's just amazing. Um, he, he's floating around the idea of community cooperative nonprofit food hubs where it's, you know, or where the city community provides the space and it's operated on a non-for-profit basis as a food hub. How, what do you, uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that that sounds super cool. Uh, like co-ops co are great. I think multi-stakeholder co-ops are even cooler. Um, so yeah, we've talked about like, would we want to ever open up a membership, like an ownership class that was our customers or community members? Um, I think we're, I think we are busy enough figuring out the complexity that we're managing right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that we might not do that in the future. And yes, absolutely. I think that there should be more public funding and support for the kind of work that we're doing because um, it's kind of like, as I was alluding to earlier, the, the work that we were doing as a wholesale distributor, like we didn't stop doing it because there wasn't value in it. It's just that that on the economy or on, on the scale that we were trying to do it at with the tools that we had our dis at our disposal, we couldn't make money doing it. And that doesn't mean that it that it wasn't worth doing um, or that it won't be worth doing it again. So um, I don't know, like you can call that a subsidy, you can call that a, a community utility, um, but that's certainly something that I, I, I would love to see. Uh, well, City of Spokane has a lot of problems, but it'd be super great if they put some funding towards that, not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, you know, distribution and having having a place to gather one of the other things that mike said was you got to keep the developers out you got to keep the big business and the big developers 
and i can i can see where he definitely has a point you know the power needs to be with the people and connecting people to their food yeah so so beth let's shift it we'll shift gears again i know you've got deep roots there by spokane have you ever thought about uh if you could pick up and go anywhere in the world <sighs> and ranch livestock food production oh. where would you go oh that's a hard question i do kind of wish i could like do like go on pause and do a bit of a world tour uh I would love to I would love to do some range riding uh, in Idaho with Alder Spring Ranch. That seems like it'd be super dope to wander around up there mm -hmm. for a little bit. I only want to do it for like two weeks though. Like I said, I'm yeah. lazy. It seems like way too much work. But I would, would go want ride to commit it. to the whole in herding thing. No, for, no, no. Uh, but six I months up there in the mountains. Yeah, no, but I wanted to go like ride a pony around for two weeks. That seems like it'd be great. A little camping trip. Uh, um Gosh, I I got to work with bison last year for the first time uh, with my friends up in Alberta. Um, sweet, sweet, uh, sweet grass bison. Cody oh, nice. and Julia Spencer, uh, Julia Mitchell and Cody Spencer. Um, yeah, so I would love to go play around with bison some more. I really want to go to go back to New Zealand. Uh, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of cool stuff going on. Okay. What are a couple of things you can't live without? Oh. Uh, I don't know. I'm pretty low maintenance. I get that. I totally <laughs> I don't know. You know, I love my I love my plammer. That's one, if I was going to just keep one, if I had to survive in the woods, uh, I'd want like a jacket and a plammer. A plammer would be. What is that? Pliers, oh, hammer. yeah, yeah. They're made, they're made in Texas. They're great. It's like the best fencing pliers ever. Look it up. Uh, and they're like really hard steel. They don't get dull like the, the crap you buy at the feed store. Okay, yeah. Really I'll cool. have to check those out here in a, yeah. in a second. Plammer. I've never... I, it's probably something I've seen, and we we just don't speak yeah, the same language. Yeah, they're they're a bit they're a bit spendy. Well, I think it I think their particular product is called the Plamer, but uh, who who the heck makes it? I can't remember. If you Google Plamer, it'll it'll pop up. Right, but they're made in Texas. So, you know, being fourth generation yourself, and I'm, you know, sixth, second, or whatever, multi generational myself. What would be some tips you'd have for somebody that's wanting to get started in livestock or protein production themselves, food production? Oh, somebody that wants to get started. Uh, well, okay, this is where I do my self plug. Obviously, you should come to New Cowgirl Camp, which is the five day yeah. intensive course that I host on my ranch for women that want to get started in ranching and raising livestock. And we do, one that guys, we do one that guys can come to as well. Yes. Because y'all complained so much about being excluded from agriculture and I just couldn't stand it anymore. So yeah, we also do a new rancher camp that is mixed, a mixed gender uh, with, with fellas allowed as well. Well, let's keep talking about your new cowgirl camp. That's a, uh... I think that's a really, really cool thing. And it's kind of a unique thing. How, how long have you been doing that? 
let's see this will be our our fourth year um it's kind of a a collaboration with actually a bunch of folks that were trained in holistic management in the mid 90s with my dad during that that kellogg project uh, through washington state university it's just a group of holistic management practitioners who have stayed in touch for the last 20 years um and so one of uh that they've kind of formed this nonprofit Roots of Resilience that I joined up with uh, to do education and outreach around holistic management in the Pacific Northwest. We were a savory hub for a little bit. Um, and through doing that work, I kind of became frustrated with uh, having field days and tours and having these like rancher dudes come to my place and look at my grazing chart blah 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 and and then be like well that's great but that'll never work on my place because of blah 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 and it's like oh okay why like why are we even doing this uh and <laughs> and so we that really were like work here yeah exactly it's like well okay we're we've been doing a couple of years of trying to do these classes and um and field days and stuff. And it's like, I can't really point you to any person who's changed their practices um, because like they came and saw my grass on one day. Um, so at the same time, I kept like meeting all these people that were like, oh, what you're doing is so cool. And I wish I could learn how to do that. And, um, and like had no, uh reservations about like open-heartedly embracing like oh yeah of course nature functions in holes and it makes sense to like try to make your livestock behave like wildlife and and simulate those grazing patterns that like it just seemed like i was talking to all these people outside of ag that would instantly get it and understand uh and anyone i was talking to who was already in it was just like rah, 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 that won't work okay dude, that won't work here. We tried that 30 years ago and it didn't work and we went yeah so so we kind of started thinking about like all right maybe we really need to focus our training efforts like if we're going to do training we need to focus our training efforts on new people and uh and one of the people in this group sandy matheson um she's also a lady like myself uh and is a multi-generation they call it farms on the west side of the cascades i don't know why it changes when you go over there but a third generation farmer on her family farm but she also raises grass-fed beef and i've known her as a family friend for a long time um but she's like a, a boomer i guess and i'm a millennial but uh mm. she also is a retired veterinarian and was like one of the first women to graduate from veterinary school at Washington State University. And uh, so has been has been like pioneering as a woman in ranching much longer than me. Um, but like we were, you know, have kind of been talking and it's like a lot of the same stupid stuff has happened to both of us, like even though there's 30 year age gap. And it's like, okay, well, what if we just create like a space for women to learn about this stuff that doesn't have any of the annoying sexist crap um, and is really just about like a holistic integrated framework and approach and uh, and like, I don't know, let's try and Not do intimidating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just like super supportive celebratory environment like no one's gonna laugh at you because you can't do 20 push ups or have a hard time like closing a wire gate. 
someone will just show you how to get better leverage so you can close the wire gate. Yeah. Um, cheater bar. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like just, you can solve every problem with a cheater bar. That's like the best thing my grandpa ever taught me. Um, so, so we just sort of like, we're like, okay, well, let's put together like a women's camp and see, see how that goes and see who shows up. And we had the most amazing group of, of gals come out and we, we created like this kind of introductory level uh, curriculum that was the basic holistic management stuff. So you create a holistic context. We go through the decision-making framework. We teach them how to do a grazing plan. You learn basic ecological monitoring, low stress livestock handling. I put a flock of sheep in my yard and everybody gets to like experience flight zones and applying pressure and um, uh, teach them how to build a fence, how to do some like basic uh fencing and facilities design it's just it's just and then because sandy's a vet we do kind of the whole animal husbandry stuff we put a cow in the head gate palpate nice. a cow you get and you know just kind of learn oh and then usually it also aligns with a day that we're doing on 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 farm butcher so uh we can like talk about anatomy and they can see the whole process on farm slaughter um, that's usually what we do on day one after breakfast and like, hello, my name is now it's like, and now we will look at the room and, and now um, we're going to disassemble a cow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's, you know, how many, it's not, how many dropouts do you have? None. I've never lost, I've never lost anyone. Um, how do, I hope people get a little like, but yeah. everybody's really hung in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Last year we, we butchered a heifer that that was pregnant that I didn't know. And so we even had like, oh, a fetus. That's like, cool. Yes, that's rock so and roll day yeah. one. <laughs> I mean, I think it's interesting. I I just am like fascinated by biology and stuff. So that stuff doesn't bug me. I think it's cool. Um, anyway, so, so it's kind of this just like very broad introductory level five-day curriculum. And we had this amazing group of women that came and it was just like the best course I've ever taught. So I was like, yeah, let's do more of this. And, uh, and then the second year uh, we had uh, a photographer from the New York Times contact me and she was like, I heard, I'm doing this series on women ranching in the West. And like, can I come shoot cowgirl camp? If they don't pick up the story, I'll give you all the photos for promotional purposes. Like, excellent, that'd be a great thing to do. So Amanda Lucier came out and shot the story and that ended up going in the New York Times in 2000. 18 um which you know i just had like a one quote but then yeah. it's you know it's just kind we'll of like make sure we'll have to make sure we link that in the show notes page i haven't seen yeah that. oh yeah it's great yeah it came out a couple of years ago it's a really the photos in it are beautiful um a lot of really cool women that i've actually gotten to know that were also featured in that article so yeah it's a it's a good one uh yeah and so then it just sort of like came, became this thing because once you're in the new york times like you gotta People keep going you i guess i mean yeah. like again as literally in, in the one times, it must be true pretty <laughs> oh yeah then you get like reality tv people and stuff that start contacting you my phone was ringing off really like, oh so crazy i was not prepared for that but yeah if any of you ever get in the new york times just just be prepared be prepared you know, like, a lot of a lot of new york and los angeles area codes start popping up on your phone it's a very weird time in my life I'm so sick of trying to uh, get sold uh, 
extended warranty for my car or another vacation at Marriott. Oh, yeah. I, I just don't even answer any shit. number that's not in my phone. <laughs> they can talk to voicemail and, you know, I'll, I'll call you back if you're legit. But yeah, yeah. same. <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be, uh, I don't know, that might be an interesting day for me when I start getting those calls. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Yeah, just just get an agent first. I didn't know. <laughs> I wish someone just get had a layer told of me. protection against all yeah, those yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I am not doing a reality TV show, by the way. Sorry to disappoint you guys. Uh, I would watch it though. It. I think that would be so interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it either, but I would definitely watch too. I still, I still get a, I still get an inquiry now and then. It's so funny, just weird. Uh, anyway, but like that, that's kind of where Cowgirl Camp was born, and now we're doing that like. This last year for COVID, we did it as an online webinar, which was actually really cool. And we're going to keep it as a, we're going to keep the webinar option as a winter, uh, winter version because we actually had a ton of people come that for whatever reason couldn't get away for five days to come out here to the ranch and the once a week webinar format worked better for them. So um, that was actually a really cool thing to experiment with and learn how to do. And yeah, we'll be back on hopefully, uh, conditions permitting we'll be back on in-person programming this summer um yeah so you can sign up at newcowgirlcamp.com by april i will actually have the website updated so by the That'll time you good. hear this it'll be time yeah to sign up. and even, the, even the new cowboy camp too will be there yep yep yeah and that one actually will be uh hosted at sandy's place which is in bellingham so it's about an hour and a half north of seattle Well, cool, 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 cool. So, wow, you about caught me. You caught me with a, without a question ready. <laughs> so, what are some of the things that inspire you to be your best self, Beth? Oh, so that's such a nice question. Um. Oh gosh, what inspires me to be my best self? Uh. I mean, I just like, I, I just think the world is so great. Like it's such a great place. Uh, like it's so freaking beautiful. I'm looking at my window right now. And even though it's freaking cold outside, like what, what cool trees and, and probably little frozen birdies out there and, and plants and animals and like, man, just what a freaking gift that, that like, all these atoms in my body schlubbed together for this moment in time so that I can experience all of this. Like, why not try to make the best of it? <laughs> Just ponder the miracle of human consciousness and our existence in the ecosystem. Yeah. Can you tell that I'm kind of a stoner, Brian? Is that coming through in my answer to that? <laughs> Never. I, you know, no, not, not judgmental at all. Shocking. Not judgmental But I mean, all. man, it's just like, what, what a, what a freaking cool place, even though it's a shit show out there. Like, yeah, I mean, all the rules we live by are made up and, uh, and we could just make up whatever kind of world we want to live in. So why not make up the best one possible? That, that goes back to something uh, my friend Hobbs said, you know, we manifest our own reality. Yeah, you know, that, that's part of 
having a shared shared vision shared holistic context you know you have a shared goal that you're striving for and you take conscious actions daily you know to strive yeah, for that always, goal as always a group. just trying to move in the right direction you know always always trying to move in the right direction and eventually that reality that, that you desire that vision that you share with others will manifest itself at least that's the theory right We'll see. Worth trying anyway. Be I mean, the alternative. A lot of the other stuff we've tried hasn't worked. So why not yeah. try something new? <laughs> That's for sure. So if you could have if you could have dinner, a meal with any three people alive oh. or dead, who would they be? Oh shoot. Dang, I feel like you had you had to give me time to think about these. These are hard. I know. I still I've known about this question for weeks, and I still sit up <laughs> at late at night and think about. I don't know who it would really be because I there's so many options. Oh man, uh, gosh, I, I right now I just miss my friends. Like who I want to have dinner yeah. with is just is just like some of my good good pals. But I want to invite more than three. I like I just really I really really miss hanging out with people and having a brewski and uh and just like kicking not back. having conference season this fall and winter it's yeah I've really, really mentally I've, trying on all of us I've missed the the Quivira my Quivira hangout time this year that's always a nice week yeah yep so yeah, I guess we'll We'll table that one and leave that one for later. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll keep thinking if I come up with a better answer. <laughs> All right. So we are kind of we are kind of getting close to the end of our time here. So uh, we like to turn it around at the end and uh, give you a chance to ask CK and I a couple questions. Oh, yeah. Well, let's see. Let's just see, don't let's throw see. the dinner, the dinner guest question. <laughs> I, I have no I answers. To, I won't turn it around <laughs> on you um let's see ck i just want to know what you're doing right now like what is your life i know like? uh i've okay so just to give a little context i know i've been super private on social media lately just because i'm tired of it like i am burnt out on you know telling everyone what i'm up to and then people being negative and whatever i, I am in midwest i'm actually yeah i think it's a common thread after last year so i've been like I've been actually really loving my privacy, but uh, I'm, I'm in Kansas. So Joel's about to finish vet school here. I'm not living in the Caribbean any longer. So when Beth and I met, I was living in the Caribbean, um, ping-ponging around all the different states, doing stuff for Pasture Map, still working with Pasture Map. Um, and we're moving to Idaho in July. So I'll probably be like five hours from you. Oh my yeah. God, that's so great. So She's I'm gonna come. Like four hours away Is from it? me now yeah yeah and i'm not going to come visit you anytime soon brian because it's so cold and i don't want to <laughs> come help you break ice <laughs> okay, that's okay you come you can come during fire season about the time exactly, this episode yeah. comes out yeah so yeah uh brian i just want to know what like actually i just want to know what life looks for you right now too oh other well, than being cold record yeah. cold and you know i i did try to plan for the worst case scenario you know 
last summer for this winter, you know, made sure I had plenty of hay, plenty of protein around in case we got, you know, a snow that stayed around for two weeks, which happens. Right now we've got ice for, you know, it's going to be here for going on two weeks. Um, I did leave enough stockpile and the wind is, was just right on the ranch where like the taller stock, the taller stems bent over mm. and sheltered a lot of undergrowth on the lee side of the plants. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's still forage out there they can get to. Um, I did break down the other day and I hauled some bales, not real proud of, but I, I went ahead and I hauled some bales uh, because I'm hopefully going to leave next week for a few days and I wanted to try to get them a little bit of extra energy. The problem is coming up, it's going to get even colder than it's been. We've already broken almost every record we have for oldest, longest, you know, amount yeah. of days in a row below freezing. Like there's things freezing up here that have never frozen up. Like our creek, I think my creek tonight is negative 15. Frozen. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It, it's getting, it's getting really bad. So way worse than the worst case planning scenario. So I, I have, I have gone ahead and, and hauled out some hay. Uh, I even gave them a bale of alfalfa and for a hundred cows and about 25 calves, I think they've got 10 protein tubs out there right now, 30% protein tubs. So they got everything they could possibly need. I'm, I'm trying to do everything I can to give them enough energy and enough protein to, to get through the cold and just cross my fingers and hoping that most that that most of them are still here when the when the weather starts to clear. <laughs> oh <mid -week>. my god! <laughs> um, other than that, you know, uh, looking forward to. I've got most of my grazing agreements already done uh, for this coming growing season. By the time this episode awesome. airs, we'll be getting cattle on the ranch and uh, and start and be making the last preps to stock. And we're looking forward to fire season, uh, prescribed burning season. A lot of guys like to burn here around right at the end of the dormant season, right before spring green up. Um, I, I'm, I'm shifting more to a summer burning program, but uh, you know, that doesn't mean I don't have to go help my neighbors in, in March, April and May when, when they want to burn. So that's coming up too. So, you know, things are about ready to get busy out here in Kansas as soon as the weather starts to warm up some. Yeah, I'm ready for it. Definitely definitely ready for spring um two weeks ago i probably wouldn't have said that but after this cold snap i'm, I'm, I'm done with it <laughs> i'm just done with it i've always wanted to visit alaska i never really contemplated how i would have to ranch there and the guys that do it up there like uh oh the kilcher family that's on discovery Ooh. oh yeah mm -mm. yeah yeah, that, that's not quite for me. Yeah, that's oh. a level of intensity I'm not, I'm not up for. <laughs> well, Beth, it has been, it has been an intense conversation. And CK and I, we really want to thank you for your time today. I know you're terribly busy. We're all extra busy because of the, because of the cold snap. Thank you for joining us today. Is there uh, anything else you want to leave us with? Any website uh, that we, that we've missed or product? you want to talk about uh yeah i guess you can you can find me at lazyrbeef.com newcowgirlcamp.com uh you can follow me on instagram at lazyrranch if you want to hear my anarchist 
uh, ramblings and see pictures of pretty sunsets, that's a great place for that kind of content. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Oh, and you can go to linkfoods.com if you want to see the, the food hub and what we're doing there. Okay, cool. Cool, cool. We'll it's sure linkfoods.com. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. We'll make sure those get in the show notes page. And so make sure you check the show notes page for everything we've talked about today New Carol Girl Camp, Link Foods, Lazy R Ranch, and I'll even put in Beth's handle on Instagram. So, gang, on behalf of my co pilot, CK, Thread Hills Rancher, another great episode of Ranching Reboot. Make sure you come back next week. Every Monday, we're going to bring you another episode and try to keep bringing you great content. As always, if we've affected your life and changed your operation, please share the podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with a stranger. You never know. You might change somebody's life. So with that, Red Hills Rancher, I'm reminding you to shake the hand that feeds you. Red Hills Rancher, out. <laughs>